Well, as we open the, uh, God's word here this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our loving Father, we do thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. We thank you that because of the work of your Son, we are able to be accepted before you. And as we spoke of already this morning and sang of this morning, we want to know that love, the love of Christ. And we want to see it spread from shore to shore. We do thank you for our ministry partners around the world, and in this case, the Jensen's. Pray that you'd bless them and continue to see their gospel labors bear fruit. And Father, as we open your word this morning, we ask that you would please instruct our minds, please shepherd our hearts, and enable us to grow in our love and faith in Christ. It's in his mighty name we pray, amen. Well, we live in an age where people often want God on their own terms. They want a God that they have crafted, a God that fits their needs, their desires. They don't care about necessarily what God has said about Himself in the Bible. They want a God that fits their expectations. And therefore, what they end up wanting and or creating is not a true God, but a false God, an idol, a substitute God, one that actually does not exist, even if they say they desire it. And this was, this attitude was expressed by a man who once was an evangelical, but he explained why he could not accept orthodox Christian teaching about the sovereignty of God or wrath against sin or the necessity of confessing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord in order to avoid eternal punishment. And he wrote the following. He says, I refuse to believe any of that. If those things are true, then God might as well send me to hell. For better or worse, I simply am not interested in any God but a completely good, entirely loving, and perfectly forgiving one. Such a God may not exist, but I will die seeking such a God, and I will pledge my allegiance to no other possibility because, quite frankly, anything less is not worthy of my worship. Please don't get me wrong. I'm well aware that I don't get to decide who God is. What I do get to decide, however, is to whom I pledge my allegiance. I am a free agent after all, and I have standards for my God, the first of which is this, I will not worship any God who is not at least as compassionate as I am. This statement is quite bold, is quite bold in its unbelief and its desire to see a God crafted in His own image. Notice that He is the standard for the God that He desires. And this really is just status quo for sinful mankind. We want to judge who God should be. We want Him to be in our image. But this is an example, this quote that I showed, an example of a person who's not living in reality. You can say all you want of who you want God to be, but the question we should be asking is, who is God truly? Who is He in reality? What is true about God? And 
we know that the Bible is the only source for us to determine, for us to know truly who God is, who our creator, who the living God is. It's in the pages of scripture that God reveals himself. And it's from that revelation that we must base our understanding of who he is upon. Now the gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record the life of Jesus Christ, and they give us a true portrait of the Son of God. In these books, we see Jesus as He truly was when He walked upon this earth. We read of His actions, of His teaching, His words. And as we come across this portrait of Jesus, we are then are forced to ask, what do we do with this man? What will we do with Jesus who is portrayed here in the Gospels before our very eyes? Will I believe him? More pointedly, will I renounce all and follow him? Because that is the demands that Jesus places upon us. We cannot simply say, oh, that's a nice man. Oh, he's got some good teachings and simply leave it at that. Because his demands upon us is that we would leave it all behind and follow after him. But it's a question that we each must answer. What will I do with the Jesus portrayed in the Gospels? And the passage before us this morning will help paint a fuller picture of who this Jesus is. And so I invite you to open your personal copy of God's Word, if you're not there already, to the book of Luke, chapter 22. The book of Luke, chapter 22, will be looking in verses 63 to 71 this morning. Now, if you've been with us, you know that we've been tracking through the life of Jesus Christ uh, as recorded by Luke, the physician, in his gospel. And we've come now to the final hours of his life in which we begin to see as he will soon be put upon a cross. Luke has already recorded for us that he was born of the Virgin Mary. He grew up in Nazareth, and then he was a anointed by the Spirit of God and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. He then spent three and a half years presenting himself to the nation of Israel as the true Messiah, as their long-awaited Savior and King, calling them to renounce it all and follow him and find eternal life, something that they could not have by simply following the law. But the nation... While they were fascinated with him and there were great crowds that thronged around him, they were not willing to give up everything. They were not willing to place their faith in him. At this point in Luke 22, Jesus has already made his final appeal to the nation. From this point on, he will not have any other speaking engagements to be able to present his case. And yet his leaders are dead set against him. They have conspired with Judas, who was one of the twelve, one of the insiders of Jesus, one of his disciples, and they, he then handed Jesus over to them. And last week we saw how Judas did this by leading the authorities to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and betrayed him with a kiss. This week in our passage we find Jesus now having been arrested, standing on trial before the Jewish high court. And they're trying to convict him. They're trying to get him executed. But as we'll see, this trial is not interested in truth. This trial is not interested in trying to find out exactly who Jesus is, trying to find out exactly what he did. They want to f simply come up with charges 
that will stand, that will enable them to put him to death. This is a kangaroo court. And they want to get their chosen outcome, and therefore they have, uh, will arrange everything in order to get that. And I just want to say here, as we are working our way through the, the Gospel of Luke, and, and uh, even as we heard from uh, the Jensen's, that we have Easter coming up at the end of March. And uh, this is a wonderful opportunity for us as a church as we make our way through Luke's gospel here for us to prepare for Easter, for us to prepare to worship Christ on that wonderful holiday in which we celebrate his resurrection. But we are going to be leading up to that, uh, that day by looking at this Christ going down through mockery and derision and ultimately to be nailed upon a cross. And then we'll be able to celebrate on Resurrection Sunday his resurrection. I planned our, our messages up until then for us to correlate with the Gospel of Luke. We're going to land on Luke 24, the, the resurrection, on Easter Sunday. And so we're going to be able to walk with Christ as he goes into his hour of darkness. But then we're going to rise in joy as we celebrate with him on Easter Sunday. So I encourage you to be with us on Sundays as we track through the Gospel of Luke and prepare our own hearts for that wonderful season. Well, with that as introduction, let's begin by reading our text before us. Follow along as I read Luke 22, verses 63 through 71. It says, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And thus ends the reading of God's word this morning. May God bless it upon all our hearts. Well, in this passage, as we examine Jesus' obvious mistreatment by the Jewish leadership, we will be faced with three revelations of Jesus' identity. Three revelations of Jesus' identity that will force us to ask whether we believe him to be our Lord and Savior. It might seem like a funny place to find these revelations of Jesus' identity, and yet as he's being examined, what's coming to the fore is who is Jesus actually? And as we see this, we see that Luke recorded these things specifically so that his readers, meaning you and I, thousands of years later, would be forced with the question of who Jesus actually is. Is this, is the Jesus presented here, the Jesus that you believe in? Let's see. First, let's look at the first aspect of Jesus' identity revealed here, and that is the true prophet who's abused, the true prophet abused. We see in verses 63 to 65. Now, before we examine the content of these verses, I want to talk about placement and have us understand the trials that are going on here even as we try to stitch them together from the different Gospels. 
Because as we do so, we realize uh, that across the four Gospels, we realize there's two main phases of Jesus' trial before his uh, sentence of death. One is a religious trial before the Jews, and the other is a civil trial before the Romans. And the Jews need the Romans to participate because the Jews, under Roman rule, were not able to execute anybody on their own. They needed the, Rome, the Romans to be able to see that Jesus was worthy of death and to mark that sentence of death upon him. And so, there's these two phases. And today, we're looking just at the first one, the Jewish trial, the Jewish phase of the trial. Next week, we'll look at the Roman phase. Now, the Jewish trial is conducted in three phases, in three phases. Again, this is by piecing them together uh, across the gospel narratives. As reading Luke, he kind of only summarizes one here. But the first phase took place under Annas. Annas, and this is described in, uh, in John chapter 18. He, Jesus was arrested, as we already saw last week, he was then brought to um, Annas' house, according to John 18, 12 through 13. And as we said last week, Annas was not the official high priest of that year. He was rather the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who is the true high priest. But even though he wasn't the official high priest, he still had enormous influence. He, not only did he have a son-in-law who was high priest, but five of his, his natural-born sons were also high priests that served in Israel. And so he was the, the patriarch over all this high priestly family. And so he held enormous influence, and so they first bring him there for him to kind of do his first rounds, see what they can get out of Jesus, see what they can get to stick upon him. But they couldn't catch him in anything, and so John 18, 24 says that he shipped him off to Caiaphas. And so that's the second phase. First phase was under Annas. The second phase is under Caiaphas, the official high priest. And he had gathered several members of the Sanhedrin, not the whole council, but some of them, in order to move more to a more thorough questioning of Jesus. They tried to bring uh, witnesses. Matthew and Mark describe this exchange. These witnesses, it says, couldn't agree. Uh, they couldn't find uh, two accusations that would stick until they uh, found two that, would, that uh, would verify that he, he said he would tear down this temple and in three days he'd raise it back up again. But ultimately, they find Jesus' words heretical, and the high priest tears his robes and decides that he's worthy of death. It's at the end of that phase of the trial, the second phase, that the mockery and the beating begin, which is documented for us here in Luke in verses 63 through 65. It is also after that second phase that where Peter runs out, and hence in Luke's narrative, Peter's uh, denial has already taken place at the end of the second phase. Uh, phase of the trial, and then he picks up talking about the mockery and the beating, and then he goes on to describe, which is the third and final phase of the Jewish trial, which is here in Luke in verses 66 through 71, and that is when the whole council, the whole Sanhedrin, gather after daylight, after day has come, when morning has come, and they must give a, a more official conviction before they ship him off to Pilate. And so here we, as we pick up the narrative in verse 63, the second phase of the trial under Caiaphas has already finished. Peter has went out and wept bitterly, as verse 62 says. And now verse 63 and 65 
describe that after they finished their questioning and they determined that Jesus is worthy of death, it says, verse 63, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. This begins the physical suffering of Jesus Christ as he makes his way towards the cross. It only gets worse from here on out. Now, of course, previous to this, as we saw in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's experienced great emotional and spiritual anguish, something that we can't even fathom, but there in the garden as he contemplated taking on the weight of sin, taking on the the wrath of God for that sin, he was in great agony. His sweat became like drops of blood, it says, and the Father even sent an angel to minister to him. And so the anguish of his soul was acute there in the garden. But it's here in verse 63 that the physical torture begins. It says that they mocked him and they beat him. It seems that there had been some sort of formality, some sort of order before this. That there was a a, a somewhat of a a semblance of a trial that we're going to put the 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 condemned up and we're going to bring witnesses forward and we're going to try to do this in some sort of an official way. But here, after a, a, a preliminary verdict was reached, they no longer are held back by any sort of formality or order. It says that they began mocking him as they beat him. After this verdict was reached, the anger and hatred of these men was now lashed out against Jesus. Was this just kind of temple guard soldiers that started doing that? Maybe. But I think the text here leaves open for the fact that some of the very men of the council, some of the very men who were standing there acting official and trying to bring the condemnation, got up from their seat. And they went over to Jesus, whose hands were bound, and began mocking him and striking him and slapping him in the face. Matthew and Mark tell us that they spit on him as well. These men had been watching Jesus from the sidelines. They're watching this quote-unquote trial take place. They had, previous to this, watched from uh, the distance as Jesus taught in the temple. And they'd been self-controlled and restrained because, you know, they're dignified chief priests and scribes. They're not going to partake in any sort of violence while the people are watching. But now as they have Jesus bound in their lair and in their possession, they felt the freedom to take out their vitriol against this man. In their pride, they saw themselves as better than Jesus. Jesus as a despicable man. Jesus was a threat to them, threat to their power. And so they thought through their mockery and through their beating that they should humiliate him, emphasize their power over him. And now, they could abuse with no consequence. According to their flesh, it felt so good to finally unleash that hatred that had been bottled up for so long as the crowds were thronging to Jesus and they hated it. Now they could could take it out on him. And Luke notes that they mocked him. They mocked him by playing a cruel and twisted version of blind man's bluff. The word on the street was that he's a prophet. So, Luke 
tells us that they, well, let's, let's run with that. You think you're a prophet? Let's blindfold you and see if you can tell who hits you. And so they playfully play around with prophecy, asking him, who struck you? Prophesy. The word to mock here means to make fun of someone by pretending that he is not what he is or by imitating him in a distorted manner. And so they playfully mock him for pretending that he's a prophet. And they unleash their tongues and begin to speak horrible things to him. Look at verse 65. It says, And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Luke doesn't even record it all. I, I, I picture Jesus there with hands bound, and they were just crowding around him, saying the, 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 the wicked, evil things that come to their mind as they... As they had anger in their hearts and in their face and as they slapped and they struck again and again. No doubt saying that he's of the devil follows Satan, blaspheming him. They were showing that they did not see him as the heaven-sent Messiah, but as a servant of Satan. And they derided him, seeking to humiliate him. And yet, what did Jesus do? Did he fight back? Did he say anything in defense? Luke, nor the other gospel writers, note anything. He simply quietly took this mockery. He quietly took this beating. He didn't retaliate. He didn't get defensive. He didn't get angry in return. He simply kept his mouth closed. And this fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 53, verse 7, which says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is otherworldly. We all know what our natural defense is, especially if we are accused unjustly. If there is nothing absolutely that we did wrong, if all of the accusations are absolutely baseless and this is all conspired against you, what kind of anger would rise up within you to fight back and say, no, stop? And yet, Jesus here, knowing what he has to do, wrestling in the garden with the cup of God's wrath that he has to drink. And he's committed and saying, no, Father, I'm going to go forward with this, even though it means receiving this kind of wicked derision. Now, in these, th these verses here, there's great irony that we, we must not miss. They are mocking him for being a prophet. And yet... The very fact that they are doing so proves Jesus is a prophet. Why? Because Jesus had predicted that they would do this. 
He had predicted that they would mock him, and here they are mocking him for being a prophet, and yet they're fulfilling his own words. Who has the last laugh now? Luke 18, verses 31 and 32 says this, And taking the twelve, he, Jesus, said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. Jesus predicted that he would be mocked and spit upon, and this is exactly what happened. All the while, they were making fun of him for being a prophet. But in addition to this, those of us that are reading Luke's gospel need to also pay attention to the fact that we have just read two verses earlier of a fulfilled prophecy of Jesus. That was that Peter would deny Jesus. Verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Jesus is the true prophet. Of course, we could document many more that were, have already been fulfilled of Jesus' word, and therefore the things that he has prophesied about, those things that are still future, will still come to pass. And so all of this proves that Jesus indeed was God's true prophet, that he spoke God's word truly and accurately. And so Luke wants us not to miss what the Jewish leadership missed, and that is that Jesus is a true prophet of God whose word can and must be trusted. When he speaks, he speaks for God. When he speaks, it is true, it is inerrant, it is authoritative. So the question for us, as we see the true prophet of God here, who is being mocked and abused, do we believe his words? Are we going to follow the example of the Jewish leadership and reject him and mock him for being a so-called prophet, just made up figment of his imagination? This man who simply doesn't know what he's talking about. Or are we going to take in the whole counsel of God and realize that Jesus Christ is indeed the one who speaks truly for God? That his word is authoritative to you and to I. And that the calling for us is for us to trust and to believe that word. There is no other word more authoritative in your life than the word of Jesus Christ. Not my word, not some sort of uh, world leader's word not a family member's word. Jesus' word is to be supreme in your life and in mine. We must listen to it. We must trust it because he speaks for God. It is his word that should be the controlling force in your life. And so we are confronted here, first of all, in this text with Jesus as the true prophet of God, the first aspect of his identity that's revealed. But there's a second revelation of his identity that we see in this text in verses 66 through 69. And this is the exalted Messiah disbelieved. Here we see in verses 66 through 69, the exalted Messiah disbelieved. As we come to verse 66, Luke gives us a time referent. You'll notice that. Look at it with me. He says, when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together. This little phrase, when day came, is important for us to place where this part of the trial took place. 
And this is why I am saying this is the third phase of the trial. Because they had to wait for day to come, and it correlates with Matthew 27, verse 1, and, Matthew, and Mark 15, verse 1, that both describe that when morning came, then the whole Sanhedrin, the whole council gathered together. So at this point, Jesus has been interrogated. He's had false witnesses come before him, and he's been abused, mocked beaten, struck, spit upon for several hours. It's roughly 6 a.m., and Jesus stands before the Sanhedrin now, looking a little bit different than when he first stood before the council just a few hours earlier. He's got, no doubt, blood dripping off his face. He's got saliva dripping off of him as these men have spit upon him. And now he's expected to stand trial yet again. They need to get an official verdict by the Sanhedrin. They need all the members there. And so this is what Luke records for us, that the assembly of the elders gathered together both chief priests and scribes. And it says they led him away to their council. This could be a way to their council chamber, their council room. We don't know exactly where this is. It, could have been in the temple. There's some records that say that the Sanhedrin met in an aspect of the temple. It could have also been in another meeting house, in the high priest's house. We're not sure. But the point is, is that he is before this entire council. That they, and it's here that they question him. Now, the findings of the previous hours, of the early morning hours, are going to be brought forward. They're not going to do any really new line of questioning. They're going to repeat some of the questioning that they did before. But again, this has the official verdict upon it so that they could then send Pilate over, or Jesus rather, over to Pilate. And so they begin their questioning, verse 67, by asking, first of all, if you are the Christ, tell us. If you are the Christ, tell us. Christ is the word meaning anointed one. It's the Greek equivalent of Messiah. So they're asking, are you the Messiah? If you are the Messiah, then please tell us. This is a question about Jesus' identity. Who are you really? And will you confess up to it? Of course, the Jews have always, had always been curious about who the Messiah would be. They've been waiting for him for centuries. They've been waiting for the Messiah to come. Who would be this promised one who would reign over Israel and over the world? When John the Baptist came on the scene, you'll remember in Luke chapter 3, it says that the people were in expectation and were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he would be the Christ or be the Messiah. John comes on and starts preaching, starts doing stuff, and they go, uh uh, maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this is the one. And it just shows that this expectation regarding the Messiah was thick in the air. And so, the Sanhedrin want Jesus to go on record as saying whether he identifies as the Messiah. And the reason for this is because if he identifies as the Messiah, if he says, yes, I am that one, then they believe that they could charge him with insurrection before Pilate. Because you see, the Messiah would, is a claim to regal position, to kingly position. He would 
reign over Israel and over the world. The prophecies, the prophets foretold. And so, if they can go to Pilate and say, listen, this man is claiming to be a king, then Rome goes, oh, wait, what a minute, what did you just say? Did you say he's, he's rising up to be a king uh, in defiance of our authority? Rome did not put up with those who claimed authority and kingship in their lands. And so, they would quell that rebellion very quickly. And so, they want Jesus to confess this. And so, they ask him, if you are the Christ, tell us. Now we, Jesus now speaks boldly. He answers their question. We've just seen Peter, when he was questioned, not even in an official way, just kind of out by the campfire, someone asked him about whether he was with Jesus, whether he was one of the 12, and Peter folded magnificently, as we saw. And so Jesus here shows us, is the true example of what it is to stand boldly when questioned. Of course, we see that the disciples learned, and even as uh, we read this morning in Acts, 16, Acts 22, Paul standing boldly before the tribunal that was there. They took their cues from Jesus. And it's in this next reply that Jesus gives that we see the next key to his identity that's revealed here. But before he gives them his clear answer about who he is, Jesus reveals that he knows their hearts. He knows their motives. He knows what's going on. Look at verse 67. After their statement, he says, But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. In those two statements, the not you will not believe and you will not answer are very emphatic. In the Greek, there's two negatives. Of course, in English, we do double negative and it makes a positive. In the Greek, the double negative is further emphasis. He says, you will not in any way believe. You will not in any way answer. Jesus knows these men and he pins them to the wall. Their question is not one of genuine curiosity. Rather, it is a hardened unbelief that puts on this sham of a question. Jesus has been abundantly clear about who he is. He's for three and a half years, he's presented himself to Israel with miracles and with teachings. And over and over again, it was clear who he was. You see, the, the problem for the Jewish leadership was not ignorance, but rather unbelief. They refused to believe, as Jesus says, you will not believe, even if I gave you all the evidence in the world, even if I gave you the clearest answer I could give you, you refuse to believe me. And friends, this just reveals that unbelief is not a mental problem, but a moral one. Unbelief, even today, is not a problem Intellectually, it's a problem of the heart. It's not that we need more information or more evidence. It's that people need to repent of their sin, of their rejection of the Lord. Now, some people today will say, well, I'll believe in God if, and then they fill in the blank. I'll believe in God if they'd heal my loved one. I'll believe in God if he showed up right now in a miraculous, amazing way. 
and prove that he's real. I would believe in God if God would blank. They put stipulations on their belief in God, thinking that it's just a lack of evidence, and if God would simply provide that, then sure, I'd go along with that. But as we said in the beginning, people want God on their own terms, right? They believe that he should fit their preconceived notions. He should follow their standards. But actually what the problem is that they're predisposed against him. Even if God did do something miraculous, they would not believe it. This reminds me of a quote from John Adams, one of the founding fathers of our, of our nation. In a letter to Thomas Jefferson, he said that he could not believe in the Trinity, that God is three in one. And I want you to hear his words. He says, had you and I, that's John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, he says, had been 40 days with Moses on Mount Sinai and admitted to behold the divine Shekinah glory. And there we're told that one was three and three one. We could not have believed it. The thunders and lightnings and earthquakes and the transcendent splendors and glories might have overwhelmed us with terror and amazement, but we could not have believed the doctrine. He says, it doesn't matter what would have happened. We could have been there on Mount Sinai and God could have told us directly about who he is and we won't believe it. We wouldn't believe it. He admits that there's no amount of evidence that would change his stance. His prior commitment would preclude his belief in the truth. No matter how amazing God may have presented himself. And unbelief is always a tragedy. Whether it's here in the first century whether it's in the 17th century, or 18th century rather, or the 21st century. It's always a tragedy. And this is unbelief that must be repented of. But after predicting their answer, Jesus then reveals his identity in verse 69. Look at it with me. He says, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. But from now on, A change was about to occur, and Sanhedrin, you better take note of it. From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. There would be now a human who would be sitting at the right hand of God. And so there's two parts of this claim. Number one, the title of the Son of Man. Number two, the action that he will do. First, he calls himself a Son of Man. This is by far Jesus' favorite title. It's used 25 times in Luke. Whereas for comparison, the the title Son of God is only used eight. And the title Son of God is never recorded in Jesus' mouth. Whereas Son of Man, Jesus says it all the time, even here. Son of Man is a title that Jesus used in reference to Daniel chapter 7. In that prophecy, it says that one like a Son of Man would come to the Ancient of Days, who is Yahweh, and he would receive an everlasting kingdom. The Son of Man, who would be The man from the line of David would rule righteously over Israel and over the world. Jesus here claims to be that son of man. He claims to be that Messiah. But what is the actions that he claims to do? Not only to be the son of man, but it says to sit at the right hand of the power of God. This is a direct reference to Psalm 110 verse 1, where it says that Yahweh says to the Messiah to sit at his right hand. And Jesus amazingly claims that essentially God the Father, Yahweh, has spoken to him and invited him to come and sit at his right hand. Jesus says that that position to the right of God is his alone to hold. And Acts chapter 2 tells us that Jesus 
sat down in that position when he ascended on high after his resurrection. And so the astounding reality is that right now in heaven, one who is a son of man, one who is truly human like you and I, is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. He occupies this place of power and glory. Of course, he's not merely human. He is God in human flesh. He is truly God and truly man, the only one qualified to sit in that position, but it is from that position that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so as Jesus says, listen, I am going to be sitting in that position of authority, Jesus essentially flips the script in the midst of this courtroom. You'll notice the scene. If you walked in on that moment, you would see the Sanhedrin questioning Jesus. You would see them trying to exert their authority. You would see the bloodied face as they sought to show that they were the ones in power over Jesus. And yet Jesus here, through his bloodied lips, says that he is ultimately the one who will judge them. They are the ones on trial. What are they going to do with the Son of Man? What are they going to do with the Son of God? Jesus is the ultimate judge. And so, just like these men, we don't put Jesus on trial. Jesus has us on trial. What are we going to do with him? Of course, the Jews didn't experience the consequences of rejecting Jesus right away that day. And so too, people today might reject Jesus and walk out this door and not experience any, any major consequences over the next few minutes, hours, or even years. But mark my words, there will come a day when everyone will have to give an account for what they did, what they do today with Jesus. We have to give an account for how we have responded to him. Jesus is the exalted Messiah. As I said, he has ascended to on high. He sits right now at the right hand of the throne of God. And so the call to each one of us is to believe in him, to trust in him. The Jews here refuse to believe in him. But the question is, what will you do? Will you trust in him? Will you believe in his word? Will you surrender all to him who is the Lord over all things? Will you bow before his sovereignty, the exalted Messiah? He will come to judge the living and the dead. Will you be counted among the believers or the disbelievers? And that's a question that only you can answer. And it's a question that has eternal consequences for you. So we've looked at two revelations of Jesus' identity in the midst of this sham trial. And the first is that the true prophet was abused. Secondly, that he is the son of man disbelieved. And let's look thirdly and finally this morning at the son of God rejected. The son of God rejected, verses 70 and 71. After Jesus makes this amazing claim, his interrogators press him one step further. Look at verse 70. So they all said, are you the son of God then? Are you the son of God then? They want one more clarification. Are you therefore, therefore are you saying that you have a special and unique relationship with God? The son of God, again, emphasizes the special relationship. And when rightly understood, it means that he was equal with God. And his enemies understood this. Jesus claimed to be equal with God and his enemies understood that. John 5 is very clear. It says in John 5, 16 through 18, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. 
because he was doing things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This is why John notes why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. People today will claim, well, Jesus never claimed to be equal with God. He never claimed to be God himself. Well, his enemies certainly understood that. You see, in a biblical framework, to be a son of someone meant you had the same rights and privileges and prerogatives of that person. And so Jesus was claiming that he had the same rights and privileges and prerogatives as God. And so Jesus replies in verse 70 here, it says, and he said to them, you say that I am. Or as the Legacy Standard Bible renders it, you yourselves say that I am. Jesus almost points back to them. He can't because his hands are bowed. But he basically says, listen, you've confessed it. You've said it from your own mouth. He's highlighting the fact that those enemies have confessed the right words about who he is. Now, the irony is that they don't believe those words. They don't believe that he is the son of God. But for those of us who have studied God's word and have read the book of Luke up to this point, we know that Jesus is indeed the son of God. It was prophesied at Jesus, uh, the angel to Mary said to, said to Mary, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus and he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The angel went on, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and in the power of the Most High shall overshadow you and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. At at Jesus' baptism, rather, the heavens parted and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice from heaven said this, you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It was confirmed again at the Mount of Transfiguration A voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Even Satan and his demons knew that he was the son of God. Luke 4 says, and demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. And so when the Sanhedrin asked him, are you therefore the son of God? Did Jesus dodge the question? No, he affirmed it because it was true. He said, you say that I am. In other words, you say correctly. And so with Jesus' affirmation, the trial was over in their minds. Verse 71, then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And so there in the early hours of April 3rd, 33 AD, Jesus was officially condemned by the leaders of his people. He came to save them, but they rejected him. They didn't want God's son to rule over them. But more personally, they didn't want to give up autonomy. They didn't want to give up the ownership of their lives. They wanted to be Lord over themselves, over their own lives, to set the agenda. They didn't want Jesus to be Lord over them, and so they rejected him, and as we'll see, sent him to Pilate to be crucified. And so we've seen three revelations of Jesus' identity in this text this morning, and in one sense, the question could be put before us, what further testimony do we need? It's a rhetorical question. There isn't any more testimony that we need. We have everything that we need to be able to see who Jesus was, that he was the true prophet, he was the exalted Messiah, that he is the Son of God. But the question before us is, what then are we going to do with this revelation of the Son of God? Are we just going to walk out the door like we never heard it? 
Or are we going to be confronted with the fact that we have seen that Jesus is truly God's Son and that He places demands upon each one of us that we would trust and believe His Word and that there are eternal consequences if we reject it? Each one of us has to answer that question. As I said, no one can answer it for you. We all must come to grips with who Jesus is. But the good news is that for those of us who have fallen short of His glory, which is every single soul in this building. We have all fallen short. But the good news is that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, the Bible promises and says, you will be saved. This is the promise of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we can have salvation even today. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen. Well, as the worship team comes forward to help us sing this final song, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this amazing truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ, even as he was there on trial, through this false trial, that he revealed who he truly was. That we, through the pen of Luke, are able to see the portrait of our majestic Savior. Even as he was bloodied and bruised, mocked and derided, Father, help us to see the glory Help us to see the majesty of our King, of our Lord, of our Savior. And may we grow in our love for him as we see all that he endured because of his love for us. And it's in his mighty name we pray. Amen.